Welcome to Beat Cancer, the official podcast of the UC Davis Comprehensive Cancer Center. Thank you for joining us today as we have in-depth discussions of the science, research, and advancements taking place at our National Cancer Institute designated Comprehensive Cancer Center. I'm Chris Joyce. And I'm Stephanie Wynn. We will also examine proactive approaches to cancer prevention, and most importantly, how we are breaking barriers to beat cancer in our community and beyond. Today, we are looking at the research field known as comparative oncology, and we're speaking to Dr. Robert Cantor. Hello there, Dr. Cantor. Hello. Dr. Cantor leads the um, surgical oncologists uh, at uh, UC Davis Health. And we also have with us on this podcast, Dr. Michael Kent. He's director of the Center for Companion Animal Health. uh, And he's also a professor at our number one vet school in the country, UC Davis School of Veterinary Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Kent, as well. Thank you, Stephanie and Chris. It's great to be here. Comparative oncology is such a mouthful, but it's a really exciting new field. And uh, even President Biden, with his uh, reignited moonshot initiative, um, sees a lot of value in this kind of research. Dr. Cantor, do you want to go ahead and start off by explaining what it is? I think comparative oncology has been around as a concept for a long time. Uh, Certainly uh, the uh, idea uh, that... um, dogs and cats and other animals get cancer um, in much the same way that humans get cancer uh, and that that there can be a lot to learn from studying cancers and other animals has been around for a long time, 50, 70 years. I think what's really seen a um, uh, resurgence sort of um, a real uh, opening up of the field recently is is the intersection of comparative oncology with immunotherapy. Um, And there really is a a, a tremendous uh, space for comparative oncology in that area because it really helps bridge uh, some of the science from sort of traditional wet lab, benchtop studies, studies in, in laboratory mice two studies in humans. And that's where, uh, at least in my view and our view, uh, there's a real place for comparative oncology and to help sort of speed translation from bench to bedside, um, especially in cancer immunology and immunotherapy, which is obviously an, an area that has tremendous unmet need. So we're testing immunotherapy in dogs who get similar cancers to humans. Um, getting these dogs, who are your patients, Dr. Kent, into clinical trials, um, seeing if that um, immunotherapy or combination of drugs is going to work on your patients, and then uh, establishing clinical trials for humans down the road. But Dr. Kent, these are these are your patients. These aren't just you know dogs that um, we can see if if things will work. And these are these are patients who come from loving families who want to see them get cured, right? No doubt, and so do I. I mean, when I think of comparative oncology, when I was first doing my residency, we, we did a lot of comparative oncology because there weren't a lot of veterinarians working in the oncologic field at that point, and we had to look at what was doing, how people were treating humans with cancer and extrapolate it back to my patients, kind of um, using humans as the guinea pigs in a sense. You know, the, all the chemotherapies, all the surgical approaches, all the... Um, radiation therapy techniques and like were really developed for humans and we brought them back to be able to help our family members dogs cats 
horses, other animals. So yeah, first and foremost, these are my patients and we're going to do right by them. You know, just as you have clinical trials in humans for diseases that we don't have good cures for, or maybe those patients where most patients will do well, but can still fail. We need those same kind of opportunities for my patients. We need to be able to push the envelope for them and try to maintain their quality of life for as long as possible, or, you know, if possible, cure them of their cancers. But, you know, so I, I would say that, yes, my patients are patients. They're not lab animals. And no one thinks that, that I've worked with. You know, the physicians I work with are just as understanding and responsible when it comes to carrying out these trials. In fact, we all work together. These are done in collaboration to make sure that our patients have the best outcomes, whether they be the dogs or cats who go into the trials initially, or, you know, when we hand those trials off, I, I don't treat people ever, but, you know, when we hand those trials off to get carried out in the human world, they have to be carried out ethically as well, obviously. Well, having lost three dogs and one horse to cancer, I applaud you for what you're doing. And they do, they're like members of your family. Um, and we're making strides. I mean, we featured on the cover of Synthesis in our last issue, um, an adorable dog uh, named Tyson, who is only given um, a month or so to live. And a year later, in participating in our immunotherapy trial, this three-legged guy uh, suffering from osteosarcoma is still a very vibrant member of the family. I visited him recently, and he was full of pep and vigor. And um, so there are the good success stories out there, right? Of course. And, you know, Having a cancer diagnosis is hard on the whole family, right? Whether that's a human or whether it's your pet. And I think that having compassion for that and understanding that is hard for some people who don't have pets. But if you've had a pet, if you've had a dog, you've had a cat, a horse, someone you're bonded to like that, you understand it and you get it. And you know, I'm a veterinarian and I do want to see humans cured from cancer. I mean, that's, that's so important, but really my, my patients, my goal is to make sure what we learn can apply back to my patients, to the dogs I take care of, the cats I take care of and their, their families too. You know, for every animal I see, they're attached to a family and that family is bound to them, you know, and whether it's, a single person or a family with multiple kids, there's a special place, you know, in that family. Yeah. And, and so it, I, I think anything we can do to help prevent, diagnose, and then ultimately treat cancer from one species can be used to help another. And so what we learn in my patients, we can transfer to Bob and his group you know, Dr. Cantor and his group, and hopefully make an impact both for, say, a dog with cancer or a cat with cancer, and then ultimately humans. You know, and there's many similarities, like, you know, Dr. Cantor was talking about. Well, and you mentioned, um, and I think it's important, you know, you don't see these as lab experiments. These are not. Um, they're not. They're, exactly. And so, which I think is, which is, is hugely important because it's probably a big misconception in the outside world sometimes. And um, Stefan brought up the 
the synthesis cover magazine, but also just recently um, in the cancer letter, comparative oncology was a big focus also in there. Dr. Cantor, you had talked about the importance really of not giving dogs cancer. Yeah, I think that's a fundamental point uh, that most people don't uh, get uh, misunderstood on that, but there are some people who, who uh, are confused that, that we're giving the animals cancer and that's absolutely uh, incorrect. And, and that's part of why uh, there's a rich sort of knowledge to be gained because they develop the cancers in the same way that humans do over time. Uh, the genetics, the biology, the interaction with the immune system is all very comparable um, and much different from how we do it in, in laboratory mice. And that's why there's so much to learn from them because uh, the cancers develop in exactly the same way um, and therefore the, the similarities are, are, are very, uh, very evident and therefore um, a better sort of uh, environment to learn from them. So yes, we're not giving the dogs cancer in any way. And actually, some people think that dogs have a higher cancer burden than humans do. Certainly among um, uh, mammals, dogs and humans have the highest cancer incidence, presumably because they're outliving their natural lifespan, um, uh, but there are other factors involved. And, and there really aren't as good statistics in dogs as there are in humans, but their cancer burden is at least as high, if not higher. Um, and so, again, that um, is an area where we can learn and, and apply it both to dogs and to, and to people. And they're living with humans, right? They're in the same environment. They're eating the same types of food. Is this all contributing to comparative oncology and the way we look at it? Definitely. Uh, uh, they, they live in the same environment. Their lifestyle is often very similar. Um, their exposures are very similar. And so their microbiomes are, are very similar. So those are all things that, that contribute. But what's also interesting is there are differences. And, and again, I think sort of uh, learning from the similarities and, and, and dissecting out the differences can, uh, can be very informative. For example, um, osteosarcoma, which is a, um, a disease, a cancer that, we, that, that was mentioned that affects both dogs and people. It affects dogs in a higher rate than people. Uh, but in humans, osteosarcoma uh, strikes mostly adolescent and young adult patients, whereas in dogs, it, it, it strikes a, um, a higher aged uh, dog population. So uh, there is likely an important insight into the biology from, from trying to uh, uh, dissect that out further. And, and interesting with osteosarcoma, too, is with the higher incidence really gives us the opportunity to be able to study a disease that can be very difficult to study in, in young adults, you know, and there's less than what, um, Bob, about a thousand um, kids, young adults who develop osteosarcoma a year, where in dogs, it's been estimated between 10 and 50,000 dogs in the United States a year develop this. So it's, this is substantial and so important to solve for dogs, but could really lead us to insights that was a relatively small number of kids developing this can happen. And, and there is a subpopulation of dogs in there who develop it around two, which probably correlates to a young adult age. But most of them, like um, Dr. Cantor was saying, Bob was saying is that, you know, it's the 10 year old dog that's more likely to get it. So an older population. So those differences there 
can really be interesting. What, what is unfortunate for the dogs and is that it follows a very similar course to humans, but a bit accelerated in some ways. And so without treatment, like you alluded to, you know, patients will unfortunately die within months. You know, even if we use our best chemotherapies that we have and amputation or other surgeries um, that we can do to, to try to spare a limb, median survival is less than a year for dogs. And we haven't been able to move that needle in 20 years. So this is why things like immunotherapies are so important and so exciting. And we have to be able to stop the metastasis. We can get the local disease under control, but we can't get the spread under control. And that's kind of the stumbling point where we've hit and why it's so important to work on this. With the treatments, um, as, it, as you examine them and look at the different treatments that are available for the, for the companion animals, how closely does it, um, once, once it's been maybe established that it works well uh, with, like, say, say the canines um, and just our, our, our pet dogs, does, it, does the treatment like exactly parallel when it goes over to the human patient or is it do we are you still having to do some different research and some different um maybe tweaking of the treatment as it goes into the into the human i think uh in general um uh they're they're very similar um there often are um uh modifications that need to be made just to account for uh you know drug dosing or or uh uh, timing and so forth, um, but in general, the the uh, the nature of the therapy is very similar. Um, there is variation depending on the specific therapy, the specific clinical trial, um, but because there's so many similarities in physiology and and, and pharmacology, um, they tend to be uh, more similar than different in my in my view. Yeah, one of the things that you know, maybe is surprising to some people is that we use all the same drugs that are used in people. You know, we're all mammals when it comes down to it. And this is why comparative oncology works too. But, you know, the same antibiotics that kill bacteria in humans kill bacteria or bacterial infections in dogs. The same kind of vaccines that we use for um, common diseases that humans get, it's the same technology and types of vaccines that are used to prevent those diseases in dogs and cats. And so, you know, it's a very similar thing. We use the same radiation protocols and type protocols I use to treat cancer patients. We use the same chemotherapy drugs in humans that we, we use in our dogs and, and cats. There are some species variations, of course, you know, um, different toxicities that we have to watch for, be careful with. But for the most part, they're very similar. So yeah, we might have to tweak things here and there. Dr. Canner, what uh, therapies do you think hold the greatest promise um, for, you know, moving into the human realm? Um, I think uh, that um, we study natural killer uh, cells, which is a type of immunotherapy um, that works uh, by using these cells to attack cancer cells. Uh, in a very innate uh, way. So they work differently than T-cells. They don't require uh, recognition of specific uh, molecules on the cells. And so if those molecules aren't there, the T-cells won't work. Um, and so we think that natural killer cells um, uh, have a lot of potential. 
Um, and I think that uh, by studying them in dogs, I think we really can overcome some of the barriers that have um, limited the field over the last 20 years or so because NK cells, natural killer cells are called NK cells. NK cells uh, have not really uh, been the breakthrough that other immunotherapies have, but we think that um, our goal is to unlock their potential in dogs and, and find a way to really turn them into a breakthrough and apply them to, to humans. This inhaled immunotherapy clinical trial um, that uh, the dogs have uh, been undergoing uh, seems like it would be something really exciting. Tell us about that a little bit more. Yes. So uh, we have also been working on a application of cytokine therapy. Cytokines are these uh, very powerful uh, proteins which stimulate the immune system. Uh, the body produces them, uh, but in very small quantities to allow the immune system to uh, turn on but not become too uh, uncontrolled. Um, and they've been tried in human clinical trials um, with, with limited success, but there's a very, a very narrow uh, balance between when they uh, show effects versus when they cause side effects or toxicity. So we uh, came up with the idea of delivering it by, uh, by a mist, by an aerosol, similar to the way some drugs are used, for example, in asthma or so forth, where you breathe it in through a breathing treatment. Because we hypothesized that it would give the strong immune stimulation right to the lungs where a lot of cancers spread to, uh, but have less side effects on the rest of the body. Uh, and we've seen some very, what we think are exciting results uh, that way. Um, and we think there is uh, potential to do that uh, in, in many types of cancer, which af affect the lungs. Um, and it's, and this, was, this is an example of a study that would never be done in humans because it's uh, sort of, um, it's not sexy for lack of a better word. Um, it's really take, it's repurposing a drug that's been around and sort of applying it in a new way in a very focused uh, uh, approach, uh, which we think has value. And, and I think we've demonstrated value to it, but it's not a new molecule that we've, you know, engineered in the lab. Um, and I, say, I think that's a perfect example of, of how uh, comparative oncology really can add value um, because this study um, was done, we were able to do it uh, successfully and shown some promising results, which we would like to continue further. Uh, and we're hoping to, to, to do that and, 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 and find um, stakeholders to support it as a human clinical trial. It seems like it's almost easier to get these canine clinical trials going than the human clinical trials. I think it is, in, in my opinion. Um, uh, the human clinical trials are, are, take a lot of time. They're very expensive. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of oversight, which is appropriate, uh, but it takes a long time. Um, and accrual can be, can be hard, even when you do get a trial supported and opened and, and going. Um, and then uh, often the results, because it takes so long, are often sometimes obsolete by the time the clinical trial is, has been completed. Um, so I think um, in many ways uh, 
there are fewer barriers to doing clinical trials in dogs. And, and another thing that I think is very important is just the altruism in the owners of the dogs because they want to see uh, trials done. They want their dog to participate because it's a loved one and they feel like other dogs are other loved ones for other families. Um, and so if their dog um, can help other dogs, uh, they are really uh, 100% behind that. Um, and so I think all of those things contribute to making clinical trials um, uh, easier in some ways to do uh, in dogs. And I just wish there was more support globally uh, for uh, canine clinical trials. I mean, we're seeing that. We're seeing a groundswell of interest and, and of support, which is great. But I think certainly more could be done. And there still are some skeptics uh, out there. What's really nice is, you know, the... I think you alluded to or already said, you know, in the beginning that the National Cancer Institute and like is really recognizing comparative oncology and we're just approaching, I believe it's about 20 years for the Comparative Oncology Trials Consortium that's set up through the NCI, which we're part of. Um, and then, you know, our cancer center, we've been a program for over 10 years now as one of the main programs for the NCI designated comprehensive cancer center at UC Davis. So I, I'd say that it is getting recognized more. The funding is still hard to come by, even though our clinical trials cost less to run than a human clinical trial, they still take resources like Bob was you know, talking about. And so really, if we want to make these breakthroughs, we're, we do need the support, you know, we do need to be able to, have the resources to run these trials because they're not free, you know, and, and it does take money to, to run them, but it's, it's vital to it. And, you know, I think, you know, Bob was saying it's a little bit easier. We still do have um, oversight. We have clinical trials review boards that independently make sure that we're not going to be hurting these patients, that everything's done with informed consent for the owners, you know, since they're enrolling their dog, their cat, you know, in the trial. Um, which I think is really important to, to keep in mind as well. Well, two things that you um, that you both have brought up, and so I want to hit on both of them. I'm going to combine it into one big question: Is the program, the comparative comparative oncology program, is it still, despite it being for us at UC Davis, kind of a, a longer running program, and despite the NCI putting more, beginning to put more focus on this, do you find it that it's still kind of a niche program? Um, amongst other cancer centers or, you know, throughout the United States? Is it something that is, um, that other cancer centers are doing or are we kind of unique or just one of, one of a few? So I, I'll, I'll take a crack at that. So I would say that, you know, veterinary oncology is a much smaller field than human oncology. And so there's, you know, 500 plus medical oncologists, hundred and 25 radiation oncologists and on the veterinary side as opposed to, I don't even know how many are on the human side, thousands. And so we're a bit smaller and we're the only um, place where we are a designated program at an NCI designated comprehensive cancer center. There are many good oncology programs at veterinary schools and many of them have relationships with their uh, medical schools or adjacent medical schools where they work together on individual projects. And there's actually, you know, 
a fairly good network of places that are building um, comparative oncology programs. I'd say ours is, um, we've taken it to a different level, to a high level by really making it a focus and understanding the importance of coming up with these trials that you know we've been talking about, but also understanding where the model works and where the model doesn't work. And that's, you know, if you want to call it a model. So, but really what is the difference between a dog cancer and a human cancer and, and kind of what Bob was talking about with the osteosarcoma, you know, where are there differences and where are there similarities? And, and I think where our comparative ecology works best when we ask a really specific question at a time and whether that's if this particular drug can do this particular thing, we are never going to be able to roll and roll as many, um, patients as a large human clinical trial. That's, you know, probably not going to be happening in my career lifetime. Again, we don't have the same kind of resources um, and we don't have as many um, clinicians and scientists, something that we're also trying to build, you know, and that, that's, that's important too, I think is the training aspects of the program that we have, because, you know, it's, it's, really comprehensive not to overuse that word but it's everything from the training to the research to the clinical work that i think makes us unique and i i think uh folks would be interested to know that when we do get these dogs in the clinical trials we're paying for all of their um treatment once they're in the trial it depends on the trial, you know, things that are standard of care, they may be paying for some of that. You, if you want good information and you want to have good outcomes and you want to learn, you need to do those things. You need to be able to follow the tumors. You need to be able to make sure that there's no toxicity. And it's also our obligation and responsibility for that as well, for our patients to make sure we're not making them sick. You know, and, and so I would say that it's, it's actually money well spent. And really, if we're going to learn something, we actually have to spend that money as well. Dr. Cantor, um, tell us what's going on at the Cancer Center in terms of how we are trying to build a genomic atlas um, that we think will be helpful um, with our research into comparative oncology. So we have started an initiative to uh, perform um, uh, sequencing uh, of a uh, cohort of uh, dog cancers encompassing uh, some of the most common uh, cancers in dogs, including osteosarcoma, melanoma, and brain tumors. Um, and those are very similar uh, in, in, in many ways to human cancers, although the melanoma is a little bit uh, different um, uh, because it mostly occurs in the, in the oral cavity. Uh, and we're sequencing those cancers to get a comprehensive profile uh, of the genes which are being expressed um, in the tumor. Uh, and to use that as a way to really drill down on the diversity, the biology, the behavior, um, the uh, factors which uh, govern outcome in all of these dogs. And in many ways, it's sort of a... Um, uh, 
extension of what has been done in humans, which is called the Cancer Genome Atlas, which has been a tremendous resource to um, to researchers across the globe, really. Uh, and UC Davis, uh, our cancer center contributed, especially to the sarcoma uh, part of the Human Cancer Genome Atlas. Uh, and now that data is is publicly available uh, through uh, uh, different portals to allow researchers to uh, query it uh, and look at different genes of interest and how the or, or gene families and how those genes um, uh, are potentially significant in, in different cancers or many cancers. So we're uh, in the process of, of, of doing something very similar in dogs. Uh, number one, to provide it as a resource for the scientific community at large, uh, but also really to further uh, on a much more, <coughs> excuse me, on a much more rigorous way these exact questions we've been talking about in terms of how similar are dog cancers to human, how different, um, uh, what are the conditions in, in that uh, make them similar, that make them different, that govern outcome and, and potential targets for uh, identifying new therapies. It, it's really an exciting new development and uh, sets us apart from certainly a lot of other uh, cancer research underway, but it's all leading to... Um, one, the same goal, which is to cure cancer. And uh, I think it's very interesting that dog data is going to do that for us. Absolutely. I, I, I think it's a very exciting um, initiative. We just got to get it done. <laughs> and Dr. Kent, will this also help us to understand why some cancers affect more breeds um, than others? For instance, I was reading that Scottish Terriers have like a 22-fold increase of bladder cancer, uh, you know, and some people love this, you know, breed and other breeds like golden retrievers, um, which has me actually after losing two goldens thinking, I don't know if I want to go get another golden retriever puppy and go through that again, you know? They're amazing dogs and, they, um, you know, there are certain breed characteristics or breed predispositions for certain types of tumors. And probably, you know, when humans artificially created all the different breeds, we probably bred in some susceptibility to cancers too. You know, and, and there's a study that we did was looking at golden retrievers, particularly since you brought that up. And, you know, we looked at all the post-mortem exams on all the golden retrievers we saw, you know, some more than 500 of them and you know it's 60 percent of dogs were dying of cancer and that's you know higher than you would expect in um the dog population in general though as bob already said there's not as good data out there and higher than humans you know and and there's different breeds are have different susceptibilities and and having this data like you were alluding to and help us try to figure out, but also it's, that means some of the noise that's in the background that you get just from having variation, let's say in a person that develops cancer. By honing down on some of these tumors that develop in certain breeds, you may be able to find the driving risk factors and the genetic risk factors for them. And so doing that genetic work, I think is really important. Um, both on the tumors themselves, but then also in the same normal tissue from that dog to see what are the differences and what's actually kind of baseline.
Well, and uh, to go back to just really quickly, uh, the clinical trial um, topic, just like Steph, I've had um, a couple of dogs that I've lost to cancer as well. So for for people that have companion animals and they're hearing this, um, how how does our loved pet um, have the ability to get onto a clinical trial? How does that come about? We just give out Dr. Kent's cell phone number. <laughs> And Bob's willing to take all those calls and call it for me instead. But um, I, I actually, no, we actually are very reachable. Um, we take referrals through the local veterinarians who are going to help diagnose these. And then also we're able to, um, through our website, we actually use the same clinical trials um, backbone um, in um, at the human um medical school uses. I'd say, you know, we have a great clinical trials team here at the vet school, just like they do at the medical school. And our clinical trials nurses are so dedicated to our patients and make sure they get the best care and to make sure that we move forward. And so we have actually, we have a veterinary center for clinical trials. We also have, you know, a clinical trials receiving line through our oncology services that make sure that the patients can get enrolled and treated. And then you know, through um, study pages, which is a way that you can look up the different trials that we have. And so that's, I'll shamelessly put out, you know, you can just Google study pages, UC Davis veterinary trials, you'll find it. Um, or it's studypages.com backslash UC Davis vet backslash home. That will take you to the um, trials page and you can look up and see not only our cancer trials, but all the other trials that we're running through the veterinary school you know, to try to benefit patients. And some of these are um, clinical trials uh, in the traditional sense that they're therapy trials. And some are, you know, as we try to learn things, as we try to better understand, let's say the dog's immune landscape, you know, we've had some trials where we've um, been looking at um, how do you actually figure out how to monitor immune responses, you know, in dogs, because all the reagents, that we have available on the human side aren't always available. So part of that has been trying to, to really build a toolbox too, so that we can really conduct very robust trials. Awesome. Well, is there anything else that uh, we haven't covered that maybe you'd like to highlight or um, bring to our attention? No, I, I, I mean, I think understanding that this is many people. So this isn't just, you know, Bob and myself doing this, you know, we have, multiple people over at the human cancer center and multiple people here at Davis in Davis at the veterinary school who are working on this problem, you know, and it's, it's going to take many people working on it to really reach that end goal that, you know, like you said, Stephanie, you know, ending cancer and that's, that's the goal. And so we, we need to um, work together and take what we can learn in my patients what Bob can learn in his patients to help everyone. I think, yeah, I would actually, um, I, I think, add that um, there is, I think there's clearly tremendous potential in comparative oncology. Uh, I think there is still a lot of work to be done to really, you know, uh, take that to the next level um, to really uh, unlock that potential um, because I would like to see the same level of uh, clinical trials, infrastructure, options, 
um, immune monitoring, translational science that really can capitalize on the um, uh, amount we can learn, uh, especially from dogs, which is my interest of dogs with cancer, because there really are these known uh, limitations in, in the current system. The current system is tremendously valuable. I mean, some very revolutionary breakthroughs have, have, have occurred, leading to Nobel Prize, leading to uh, uh, breakthroughs in how patients are treated. Uh, but there's still a lot of work to be done, and, and the current uh, pipeline has a lot of failure from, from mouse to human. And I really think if we can truly uh, realize the potential of comparative oncology, uh, we can make that a lot better. And so that would really be my goal for the, uh, for the future. Well, thanks to both of you for being pioneers in this field. You make us very proud. Thanks, Stephanie. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for tuning in and listening today. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us directly at beatcancer at ucdavis.edu. Beat Cancer is a production of the UC Davis Comprehensive Cancer Center. For more information on our NCI-designated Comprehensive Cancer Center, please visit health.ucdavis.edu slash cancer. Music